You're listening to the Man Overseas Podcast, a show that explores methods and ideas to help you live a bigger life. You will hear interesting stories of how people live, how they save and invest their money, and why having time wealth is better than being a billionaire. If you are entertained, educated, or elevated, be sure to hit the subscribe button. We're just getting started. Now here is your host, Brad D'Antonio. Hi, friends, and welcome. In today's episode, I go back to the well, back to Joseph Wells. He's been such a great guest in the past, I wanted to get him back on. But no podcast we've done to date has been more important than today's episode. I say that because we discuss what I believe to be one of the most important issues in our time, at least in America, and that is the coddling of young people in our culture. And you might say, well, why is that so important? And I would tell you what's more important than the development of our kids of America's youth. Nothing. Nothing's more important than educating and developing young people. So even though Joseph and I don't even have kids yet, we take it upon ourselves to do what we can to impart what we've learned for our younger readers and listeners. The way I see it, much of the time that our friends are parenting and watching kids shows on Netflix and Disney+, Plus, Joseph and I have had more time available to us to read and think and write And time will tell whether our early mornings and late nights spent writing essays or recording podcasts were profitably spent. It'll be determined primarily by whether we have a positive impact on someone or maybe dozens of someones or with the leverage provided by the power of the Internet, maybe someday hundreds of thousands could be inspired. You never know the reach you're getting until one day somebody from Estonia contacts you and says, dude, that conversation with Michael Dalbar or Brian Roundtree touched me. What I heard that day was exactly what I needed to hear at at the right time, and and it turned my life around. And that's why Joseph and I do this. We're not in it for the money. I didn't make more money podcasting last month than your paper boy did doing the ditty. (laughs) Having a platform like this gives us an opportunity to improve our thinking, to share what we've learned. A lot of times it's through argumentation that we learn and our, our thinking becomes clearer. And I think we achieved some of that in this episode. So you'll notice about 15 minutes in, Joseph tests my intellectual humility, which is great. I want to be challenged. He put me on the spot. The reason is I had an opinion about something and Joseph didn't think that I knew what the hell I was talking about. (laughs) And so he forced me to say, I don't know. I love it. Is there a better way to learn than to be humiliated in public? (laughs) Some of you need to get your goddamn ego out of the way and open your mind. If you're worried about getting your feelings hurt in front of others, you're not going to learn as much as me. By the way, I wasn't humiliated. That wasn't the point. He wasn't trying to embarrass me. The takeaway should be, here are two men having a respectful disagreement and a willingness on one of their parts to say, I don't know, which is becoming so exceedingly rare in our culture. Why can't people say, I don't know? Since the theme of this podcast is self-development and other life lessons learned through study and observation, I'm going to share with you something that I have learned through study and observation. Nobody likes a know-it-all. And if you're in business, if you're in sales of any kind, you better be willing to say, I don't know. And guess what? Even if you're not in sales, you're in sales. We're all salespeople now. Let's talk business for a minute. Think about what sort of customer or client you want to attract. 
probably high caliber individuals, right? Those capable of making a decision or those who have influence within an organization. Well, guess what? Those people also tend to have money to buy your product. <laughs> we talk a lot about attracting the right people in, in your, into your life and surrounding yourself with high value people. Well, your customers are part of that equation. You're going to spend probably a quarter of your life with your best customers, the people who you're going to treat like first, first class passengers on your airline. You don't want gullible customers who would buy turds if you shine them real nice. No, you want discerning customers who are sharp because that makes you better. A discerning customer will see through your bullshit. That's a valuable customer to have. And the earlier you can encounter them and refine your communication, the better. You young guys in your 20s who think that sales is persuading people to do things that aren't in their best interest are fooling yourselves. That's not how it works. You want to surround yourself with good people, good coworkers and friends and customers. Remember, treating them like first-class passengers on your airline makes you a relationship builder. Air airlines build relationships with their best customers long-term. Transactional salespeople don't make big money. Salespeople who make the big dough build relationships and they bring value to that relationship. So they're autodidacts continuously learning so that they can provide value to other people. You can't build long-term relationships if you're always full of shit. Don't discount the fact that customers and clients can positively impact your life's journey. They'll add a little joy to your job. So play long-term games with those folks. You can't imagine the rewards of a smart A-plus client who challenges you and respects you and as a result is willing to refer you to his or her friends and colleagues. You've bought things before. You tell me the type of person you prefer to deal with. Hey, Mr. Customer, I don't know the answer to your question, but let me find out and I'll get back to you this afternoon. Does that sound good? And do what you say you're going to do. Or do you want to work with the bullshitter? Quick break. Word from our sponsor. I'll be right back. Why buy when you can rent an item from someone in your neighborhood with Idol? It's easy. You have an item, you list that item for rent, another app user is looking for that item and rents it from you, and you get paid. Rent everything you need, when you need it, in a location close to home. Get the app today. Visit getidle.com. Idol. Rent anything. I was talking about communication skills. Joseph interviewed Peter Bogosian on his podcast recently. Bogosian is best known for his work on grievance studies, but he also wrote a book called How to Have Impossible Conversations. I love the title. I love the titles of both the books we discuss in this episode. The Coddling of the American Mind by Joseph or Jonathan Haidt and How to Have Impossible Conversations. Awesome. Joseph and I discuss exactly how to have hard conversations and how to persuade people in the process. It's no secret that your life will be limited by your ability to use language to get what you want. So I encourage people to challenge themselves to put into words that which might dramatically improve their most important relationships. When you start to do this with an open mind, with intellectual humility, you'll learn from your successes and your failures. That's why we keep a journal. I'm telling you, you'll begin to see increase all around you. Your job prospects will increase. Your friends group will get better. Your pockets will get fatter. <laughs> your influence will grow. Investments appreciating in value. Cash flow. 
money coming in that you didn't even have to work for. It's all to the good pop. I call it living a bigger life. Now let's bring Joseph on. Joseph's work can be found at josephcwells.com and Apple Podcasts. Now without saying without further ado, let's bring on Mr. Joseph Wells. Joseph, welcome back, buddy. Brad, what's up, man? Uh, not too much. I was listening to your interview with Peter Bogosian recently, and I want to say that you are you should be very proud, dude. That was some great work. Thank you. Thank you. He is a pretty cool guy. Yeah. Dude, he, he moved up to my top five in terms of guys I'd want to have a beer with just listening to you chat with him. You know what's funny? He is quite liberal, but you wouldn't know that because the liberal media and the education establishment paints him as like, what's that term that they use for uh, Jordan Peterson and Dave Rubin, those guys? Alt-right. That's what it is. Alt-right. <laughs> like He's yeah. not alt-right. He's a liberal. Right, he's just he just favors free speech and and common sense, really. Yeah, people want to fit others into a box. So if you're not sure. alt right, then you're alt right adjacent. Right. And right. if you if you even checked nine out of the ten liberal boxes, that's not good enough. <laughs> <laughs> you need to have ten out of ten, or you're gone. It's crazy. Which which he is gone, right? Didn't he lose his job recently? Yeah, so the way I understood it is that he's like still technically there, but he's on administrative leave or something like that. He, he did some crazy shit uh, with the grievance study affairs. I don't know how much you know about that. I do. I, I followed it because I found it fascinating. It was really cool. So you probably know more about it than I do, but he and two other people, a guy named James Lindsay and a woman whose name escapes me, they they you know put together these papers that were essentially bullshit and the one that comes to mind was uh rape culture in dog parks <laughs> <laughs> which is hilarious so they they put together this paper saying that there was uh, a, a perpetuation of rape culture in dog parks when, when like dogs would hump each other mm -hmm. right? and the paper got published like it was a total farcical paper and it got published in some kind of journal and for them that was like exposing like hey look this grievance study stuff is bullshit. Like we made up all this stuff and it got through the peer review and they said it was not only did it get published, I think it got an award. <laughs> it doesn't surprise me. It's wild. Yeah. I think they were trying to demonstrate that universities have gotten to a point where they're engaging in more activism than scholarship. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. So in order to expose what was going on, they had, fabricated, quote unquote, fabricated data, right? Which is what he got in trouble for. So I remember him telling you that he got in trouble for plagiarizing Mein Kampf, which should be obvious to anyone that he was doing that and just substitu substituting the word feminism into the, the literature. Right. Uh, but yeah, he had also said that they had inspected 10,000 genitals, <laughs> 10,000 genitals at dog parks. To come up with this proof that that doggies had been raped and yeah, it was it was just absolutely wild. And I really don't think every institution is like that, but that certainly highlights where some of them are moving. And that, that's just not a good place to be. You can't. It's just extreme. It's very extreme. Well, what's unfortunate is it seems like that they would have known that you're not going to be able to expose them in that way with success because people who are so far 
intertwined with academia that they take these uber liberal liberal positions and publish all these papers and pat each other on the back like if if you give them something that helps them to discover that they're being ridiculous by having them read through the lines people don't take kindly to that no it was it was like a a tough approach because like even if you're successful which i I think they were how successful were they because like peter lost his job basically i know it's a ton of people have commended them and even according to him professors at portland i think it's portland state university have said like we really appreciate what you did but nobody will come out publicly and say these guys are great because they're afraid that they're going to lose their jobs and you know if they were fabricating data and doing things that are not up to the standards of academia then they weren't totally uh, without fault, but I think they shine some light on an issue that certainly exists in the universities. It reminds me of like if you caught your girlfriend cheating and exposed it, there's no way she's going to be impressed with how creative or ingenious your methods were of catching her and exposing the cheating. No. So, She's going to probably blame you or attack you (laughs) or accuse you of fabricating whatever it is that you've found. So I just think it's it's not going to play out in your favor. Yeah. Yeah. If you have someone who's so heavily invested in their own narrative, don't expect some humility. Like it's just, it's not going to happen. So it just seems like it was a bit naive, but at least it called attention to what's going on in the universities for us lay people anyway, right? Because they know what's going on and people like you and I don't. Because one of the things that he says and also Jonathan Haidt says, which we're going to talk about here shortly, I'm sure, is all of this is going on on the West Coast and in the Northeast. Right. Primarily. Yeah. Right. I I believe he said there's something like 4,500 universities in the U.S. And most of them, none of this stuff goes on where they would need to expose all of this bias and groupthink. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm not sure on the numbers, um, but I know I know Height points out that it's mostly in social sciences, like that's that's where the the extreme lack of balance, essentially in right versus left, and what he says is that you need to have differing opinions in order to challenge your biases, because if if everybody there is liberal or everybody there is conservative, they're all going to confirm each other's biases and nothing productive is going to come out of it. So you need like a, a three to two or, or a two to one balance rather than like a 17 to one balance, which is what they're seeing in a lot of the social science departments. Yeah. And it wasn't always that way, right? In the eighties and nineties, there wasn't nearly as much bias as there is now to what do they attribute the big swing? So like swing in, in faculty or well, swing in where it used to be maybe three to one. Now it's 17 to one, as you said. Yeah. I, I don't know that, that. So that section of um, Height's book, the coddling of the American mind, that, that kind of got in the weeds to me. What I followed better was how he explained like in the last 10 or so years, the, the students have shifted the way that they look at things on campus to kind of swing I guess it's more liberal, but it's it's just a total different way of dealing with adversity and and perceived harm. As 
boomers became the professors at the colleges they had grown up in like you're saying that the 60s and 70s the sexual revolution the cultural revolution and all that stuff um that i guess produced a lot more liberal thinking than the people who grew up in the 30s and 40s during the great depression and world war ii who tended to be a lot more conservative i think makes so just just by nature of the of the decades you had those um types of people's types of people in these institutions yeah and he talked about people being very confident in their opinions now and so it's harder to debate but he gave you some tactics on how he goes about trying to at, at least get people to consider other arguments or maybe have a diminished confidence in their argument do you remember having that conversation yeah yeah he has so he and James Lindsay wrote this really good book called How to Have Impossible Conversations. And it's it's all about exactly what you're talking about here, like how to, number one, have civil conversations with people that you disagree with, but number two, how to kind of subtly change their mind. Um, you don't want to come out and blatantly present facts contrary to what they're saying, because that's not going to change their mind. One of the best ways to change somebody's mind is to instill doubt. So he suggests asking a lot of questions. And, and one of the techniques that they kind of they coined this term, it's called the unread library effect. And I really like this one because like everybody can relate to this. It's essentially the idea that if you are standing in a library and you're surrounded by thousands of books, you feel like you have the knowledge that's contained in all of those books, when in reality, you don't have any of it if you haven't read the books. Now, we're all currently standing in a library surrounded by thousands of books because we have our iPhone in our pocket, right? You can Google anything at any time and have some type of answer. Uh, so we're extremely confident that we know things when in reality, we, we really don't know those things. So he calls that the unread library effect. And a good way to point this out to yourself is to take something as simple as a toilet or a coffee maker or, or just like any household object and challenge yourself to explain how it works in excruciating detail. So you would take a toilet, for example, and say, okay, when I, when I flush the toilet, what's happening? You know, the water's going into the bowl, but where's it coming from? Um, how, does, how does it go down the drain and how does it stop? And then how does the tank refill? Me just trying to stumble through this right now, like I've thought about this a couple times because he's given the example and I still don't know how the fuck a toilet works, right? Like, it's not that complicated. I use it every single day, but I can't explain to you in great detail how a toilet works. So the more times you go through this exercise where you pick things that you think like, oh yeah, I use this all the time. I know exactly how it works. And then you try to explain it and realize, oh wait, I don't know how that works. It increases your humility. And if you're able to to ask, <clears throat> to ask another person a question, like say, uh, Brad, that you are, say we're arguing about a toilet, right? Well, I don't know why we would be, but that's kind of stupid, but it's an easy example. And I say, how, how, how does a toilet flush? And then you have to try to explain it to me. And I can expose to you that you don't really know what you're talking about just by asking you these simple questions. Like, okay, when you push the handle, where does the water go? And then how does the water get back into the tank? And by continuing to ask you these questions, 
you'll slowly realize that you don't know how it works either. So maybe the opinion that you hold um, is not based in reality. So that was that was one of my favorite ones from his book. I disagree. I am someone who has always tried to pick the low-hanging fruit because I value my time so much. Mm. So I don't care how FaceTime works. The fact that I can live like the Jetsons lived when, you know, that was a big cartoon when I was a kid. Yeah. The fact that I can press some buttons and my mom shows up on the screen. I don't need to know the inner workings of my iPhone or my toilet or any of that because time is precious and I would rather spend it doing things that I enjoy, reading about things that interest me. I I am totally not interested in learning how a toilet works. The only benefit I can see would be an exercise in communication and articulation. But I, I get humility, intellectual humility in a completely different way. And maybe it's because I, I have it. I can skip that step. <laughs> but, but yeah, to me, that's a, I don't like his example. And I also don't agree with the feeling of having access to an unread library and, and feeling as if you have the knowledge. I've never experienced that in my life. <laughs> so maybe he's trying to get me or the reader to relate to something that he feels himself. But I just, I can't get on board. <laughs> I just don't get it. <laughs> So um, how about, how do you feel about the Electoral College? Uh, in terms of sensations in my body? like No, 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 no. Or, Let's not get that deep. <laughs> <laughs> do you think we should have the Electoral College or do you think we should uh, go by a popular vote? Electoral College. Why do you think that? I thought you said you didn't want to go deep. <laughs> um. Uh, I think the, the founders were very wise. They understood that if you get 51% of the population, then it's, it's over. And they, were, they built into the fabric of our republic these checks and balances that would not allow for that to happen. So otherwise, you would have presidential candidates who spend all their time in L.A. and New York and not go anywhere else. So, so how, how exactly does the Electoral College prevent uh, presidents from spending all their time in one place or another? Because they need to get votes from Iowa and New Hampshire. Otherwise, you just go to the heavily populated areas. You'd never shake a hand in Iowa. And I think there's something valuable about that. Besides, people who converge and live in small, compact spaces tend to think alike. And so if you want diversity, if you want different opinions and for conservatives and liberals to come together, you're going to have to expand beyond New York and LA. Right. So how, how are the electors chosen? Like how, how does a state, how is it determined how many electoral votes a state gets? It is based on population, I believe. How, how do they calculate it based on population? I have no idea. This is exactly what he's talking about with the unread library effect, because you seem pretty confident the electoral college is the way to go over the popular vote. And I don't disagree with you. Like, I don't really care one way or another on on this Mm -hmm. conversation. But the fact that you don't know how the electoral uh, votes are are divvied up kind Mm -hmm. of exposes that you don't know exactly how the system works. So it's 
it's you might may be overconfident in your opinion if you don't know exactly how the system works. Maybe I'm not doing a great job explaining that, but no, I think you're doing a good job of explaining it. But I wouldn't need to know how superdelegates work either in order to cast my vote for whether I wanted electoral college or a pure democracy. The reason we're a republic and not a democracy is because the founders had a lot of wisdom and knew that the 51 to 49 was not the ideal. Mm. And I, I thought that I had explained that pretty well, but the fact that I don't know exactly how the ratio of electoral votes to population works, to me, that just doesn't, it, that wouldn't keep me from having an opinion. I, I think I had enough to make an informed opinion. And there's always going to be aspects of things that you may not know. You can't specialize in everything, but you still have yeah. to go through life with enough information to be able to make decisions. Yeah, I think that's fair. And, and in this case, you probably do have enough information to make your decision. I think it's just kind of an example of if you go through this process with somebody when you're having a conversation and, and a, a debate, if you ask enough questions and the person doesn't know anything about the topic, it quickly becomes apparent to both you and them, I think. So I, I think that's kind of where he's coming from with it. Well, I think what normally happens is someone in my position who was interrogated in the way that you just asked me questions mm -hmm. would have an emotional response and get yeah. defensive mm -hmm. and not have the intellectual humility to say, well, I, I don't know. But I'm comfortable saying I don't know, and I can even go as far as to be completely objective and take myself out of it because I've just put something out there for you to wrestle with, and I didn't even see it as you arguing with me, not that it was an argument, but you discussing it with me. Mm -hmm. I looked at it as having thrown what I know into the, the middle of the circle mm -hmm. and then us kind of taking some sticks and batting it around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what? It it might be it might be a tough example to work with you because you already have intellectual humility, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I like to think that I do, but I would love to do some more of those exercises because a lot of the confirmation bias and stuff, I mm. also feel that I don't have. And I understand that it's it's almost cliche to say, well, everybody has confirmation bias and to think that you don't is idiotic. And I'm sure that I do have them, but they've never been pointed out to me. And, and so yeah. I would welcome that. We can try it. I, I'm not <laughs> an expert on this, but, um, you know, practicing is, is how we get better. So, Indeed. It's what I like about you. Well, what would you like to argue about? Well, I like the line of thinking that we were just on. So do you have an opinion as to why people seem so confident in their opinions nowadays? I think it's a number of things, but I think what contributes to it is something that I wrote about, uh, I've written about a number of times, and it's tribalism and, and group identity. So I think that people have a deep-rooted desire to belong to a group, and this goes back to ancient, ancient tribes. Um, so in, in modern times, we want to feel like we're part of a group, and, and we manufacture a lot of groups to feel like we're, we're part of it, whether that's um, Democrats and Republicans or um, 
race, which isn't manufactured, but it's still, you know, different, different groups or sports teams or whatever. And when you're part of a group, you feel an extreme loyalty to that group. So you want to express an opinion that is in line with that group. Um, even if you don't have a lot of information to back that up. So I think that might be one reason why people feel very confident in their opinions. I think it has to do with what you were talking about earlier, this unread library effect. I think where it has some merit is when people don't understand but think that they do, we can tell by how emotional people get. Highly emotional people don't have a deep understanding. Otherwise, they wouldn't be highly emotional. If they had an, a better understanding, the nuances alone would, be, would have a sobering effect. So more understanding is accompanied by less emotion. And I think the reason we're seeing more of it now is because we do have the, the world of information in our phones on us at all times. And we are highly reactive nowadays. There are companies right now trying to figure out how to get us to click on something with different titles that they use. Mm. And they know that emotion gets clicks. So I think all of that factors into why we're polarized and why we pick tribes. But I'd like to think that I'm not in a tribe. I don't, I don't check all the, the boxes of either party. Yeah, and I think most people don't. I think the, the stats say that there's like uh, between 7 and 12% of people on either side check every box when they go down a survey. As, as if, if there are 10 questions, I think that's how Pew Research did it. Mm. Uh, like, I don't know, 8 or 9% of people are entirely liberal and 8 or 9% of people are entirely conservative. But most of us are in the middle. Like, I consider myself to be pretty socially liberal and fiscally conservative more so, I think. So I, I, I try to see that nuance as well, and I try to remove as much emotion as possible. But I see what you're saying with, especially with social media, the things that drive clicks are the things that drive emotion. So that makes sense. Some of Jonathan Haidt's research that I found incredibly interesting was that conservatives tend to know what liberals think and liberals don't know what conservatives think. So there were questions that were asked about which, what do you think the other side thinks? And, mm -hmm. and liberals did resoundingly poor and conservatives did very well on the, the same. It was sort of like an aptitude test for how much do you know about the other side? And I know just from my own real world experience that that is true. I mean, you could talk to your average progressive or liberal in America, and they, they never have been exposed to Thomas Sowell, for example, or Hayek, or, or just somebody that, that articulates well the conservative viewpoint. But mm. a conservative almost always knows the liberal viewpoint because we're exposed to it so much. And if you wanted to know the conservative viewpoint, you'd have to seek that information. And most people aren't going to take the time to do that when it's already packaged and fed to them by their own side. So if you're someone who got your news from The Daily Show in college, mm -hmm. you haven't, and you got it from your professors also, you haven't been exposed to the conservative viewpoint. Another thing that I found interesting was that he was saying that after not being exposed in college, 
what's happening now is that those same viewpoints are starting to permeate the workplace too. So the, the lack of diversity is showing up in technology companies on the West Coast, for example. Right. We had the James Damore situation, remember, at Google. Right, right. Where they were asking for feedback and his engineering brain was like, they, they genuinely want feedback. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give them all this data. And they were like, whoa, hey, that's not what we want. Right. <laughs> so he was fired. Yeah, so I, I think this this study that you're referring to, it was based on moral foundations theory. Is that correct? You tell me. I know you've studied that a bit. Yeah, I, I, so I think it was. I think it was, um, I don't remember exactly what it was called, but it was like liberals, liberal and conservative perspectives of the other side. And I think what you're saying is generally accurate. And I think that the the reason for that is what what height found is so there are five moral foundations upon which people base their their moral judgments um, there's harm slash care fairness slash proportionality and those two foundations are more uh, endorsed by people who are left-leaning on the political spectrum and then there are the other three which are authority uh, loyalty and sanctity and purity and those three are more endorsed by people who lean to the right on the political spectrum. But when you look at the distribution, so if you look at it as, as like a, 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 line, a line graph, there are two intersecting lines. And at the left, liberals care very much about these two foundations, the um, care and the fairness. Conservatives care about them as well, but not as much as, as liberals do. I think you make a good point. Conservatives are more likely to say life isn't fair. The best example I can think of when it comes to fairness to illustrate the point between a liberal and conservative was during the 2008 primary when Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama were the candidates for the Democrat Party. Mm-hmm. And the interviewer asked Barack Obama, since when taxes were reduced, more money came into the treasury. Yeah, they were talking about the capital gains tax. They said when the capital gains tax, I believe it was lowered from maybe 22% to 15%, but don't quote me on that. But he was saying that when it was reduced, more money came into the treasury. And since that is the case, why would he then be in favor of raising the capital gains tax? Mm-hmm. And he said, well, I think it's just a matter of fairness. And so in saying that, it, he is, I guess, going to deem himself the arbiter of fairness. But if you have social programs that you need money for, and you've got this proven method of reducing capital gains tax to bring in money to support those programs, but you don't want to do it because of fairness, that is a primary difference between the left and the right. Because when you're talking about fairness, you're talking about not only him being the arbiter of fairness, one of the anointed, as sure. Thomas Sowell would call them. But at what point is fairness achieved? Yeah, I, I think one of the important points that, that Height makes about this is that liberals think of fairness as equality and conservatives think of fairness as proportionality. So there's kind of an important distinction there in that proportionality means 
you receive benefits in proportion to how hard you work for them, or you receive punishment in proportion to how bad the, the act was that you committed. Whereas equality means everybody gets the same thing regardless of, of effort or or any pre-existing circumstances. I think that's a great point. The TED Talk that Jonathan Haidt did in 2013, he talked about how if everybody could take off their partisan blinders and see that problems are best addressed by both conservatives and liberals because we wouldn't be here unless they had worked together. Do you remember that TED Talk? Yeah, he, he makes a really good point now, and I actually wrote about that in, in my newsletter. And I think what he's saying there is that liberals aren't going to be right about everything. Conservatives aren't going to be right about everything. But when we blend our, our different moral reasonings, we're able to solve problems pretty well. And it's not, it's not an us versus them, I'm at odds with you kind of situation. It's, uh, I'm a conservative, so I think this way, and that's very good for one specific thing. And you're a liberal, so you think this way, and that's good for another very specific thing. And when we put those two things together, we can accomplish five things rather than one thing each. I think that's like the basic idea that he's, that he's trying to get across there. And he, he says something like, if you want to if you want to work on income inequality you're going to want to work on marriage right because if if a, a kid lives in a two parent household that household is likely going to make more money and that kid's going to be more likely to graduate high school and and go to college if liberals want to promote income equality they're going to want to work with a conservative church group who is promoting the sanctity of marriage and if that conservative church group who's promoting the sanctity of marriage they're going to want to work with a liberal group who is promoting better jobs in lower income communities. So the men uh, have a way to make an income and they're not resorting to crime and then going to prison and then not having um, married households. So it's like very interrelated. It's not just a, a liberal problem that we can solve from a conservative perspective or a conservative problem that we can solve from a liberal perspective. These things all uh, intertwine. So if we understand that we're not at odds, uh, we're actually working together, we can solve a lot of these problems. But it, it requires intellectual humility like we were talking about earlier. This is where I think some of the naivete of what Peter Boghossian was saying on your podcast comes into play. Mm -hmm. Because he talked about getting someone to reduce their confidence in a position. And he gave the example of you say America is a patriarchy. And I ask you, well, how confident are you in that belief mm -hmm. on a scale of one to 10? And then based on what they say, you can say, well, Saudi Arabia is a 10. Are you still confident that America is a whatever? Right. But my experience tells me that if you are arguing with someone or discussing this with someone, they're not going to be enlightened by your point and say, oh, that's that's smart. Why didn't I think of that? No, they're going to double down or they're going to deflect and talk about something else or they're going to attack America. Mm. It, it's just not real world thinking. It sounds like something that came out of the ivory tower, out of academia. So to give you another example, Jonathan Haidt in the TED Talk, he talks about if you really want to strengthen families, you might want to talk about marriage. Well, the other side is not going to say, oh, you're right. We need to 
have more African-Americans uh, having wedlock births because from 1960 to 2012, the out-of-wedlock birth rate has gone from something like 20% to 70%. They're not going to say, oh, you're right. We need to work on that. It, so it sounds like he's new to this, as if he hasn't been thinking about this for, for 20 years. And to me, it, it's an example of how the left doesn't know what the right knows already. So me knowing the conservative viewpoint, I can tell you what the rebuttals will be. He says, um, if you want to talk to some liberal groups who are working on promoting ed educational equality, well, then you're going to want to find ways to stop so many men from, from being sucked into the criminal justice system. Well, the conservative is going, to, is going to say, are you in the real world? People don't get sucked into the criminal justice system. Don't use that as a throwaway line. People make decisions every day. Right. So I think that liberals or progressives, I, I love the fact that they put care and equality and all of that into their, they, they feel so strongly about those positions because he's right. We have to, we've gotten here because of both liberals and progressive. It's why mm. you meet, need both the masculine and the feminine. It's why a child is ideally the optimal way, I think, is to be raised with both a mother and a father so that you can get both. But liberals or progressives are notoriously bad at considering second and third order effects, which is just thinking a little deeper. So, for example, thinking about the fact that marriage is a weapon against inequality, that takes some thought to get to that point. Are they willing to go there because it's emotionally, it's mentally uncomfortable to entertain the fact that the African-American out of wedlock birth rate has, has gone up 300%? Since, 19, since the 1960s. And that coincided with the Lyndon Baines Johnson Great Society, all, this, you know, all of that government intervention. Right. We all know the fast lane to the middle class is graduate high school, get a job, and don't have a child until you're married. Do you yeah, think that... Pretty simple. Yeah, I don't think that both sides are just going to agree to that and say, oh, you're right, let's work together. It doesn't work like that because you're dealing with people who have high emotion because they're not willing to think of second and third order effects. It's not like you, you call that to their attention or you're able to diminish their confidence in their position and they come to a realization. It just doesn't work like that. This is pie in the sky academic stuff that isn't applicable in the real world. So what would be, what would be a, a better approach if... So, because, I mean, this is being proposed by a liberal, right? Height's a liberal. And he's, he's, he's acknowledging that marriage will lead to lower income inequality, right? Greater, right. greater income inequality. He, he's acknowledging that. Um, well, he was just thrown out of the university. <laughs> so no, I think height, he's wasn't. A, height wasn't. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Bogosian was. Right. Yeah, Bogosian was. Bogosian was. So I think it depends who you're talking to, right? Like a, a lot of a lot of people do have extremely low intellectual humility, and and their identity is rooted in their opinions. Um, but I I don't know that most policymakers are like that. They, they they might appear to be like that, but I think that's because they're representing a constituency that is more emotional than they are. Like the AOCs of the world? Yeah. <laughs> give you this example. Bogosian talked to you about how people are quick to give their opinion on things they know nothing about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Well, one of the things that Jonathan Haidt says is if we really care about strengthening families, you might want to talk to some liberal groups who are working on raising the minimum wage. That is what I would expect from a liberal professor. I don't expect him to understand the basic economics of Thomas Sowell, who would explain to you that you're not reducing inequality by raising the minimum wage. I guess I guess it really depend, depends on where you're talking about, because if you're raising the minimum wage in New York City from what the federal minimum wage is, right? It's like seven twenty-five. If you raise the federal minimum wage, or if you raise the wage in New York City above the federal minimum wage, I think you are doing something to help bring people out of poverty. Um, but if you're doing that in upstate New York, where that's going to crush the businesses who have to pay it, and federal minimum wage is actually pretty damn close to a living wage, uh, then then yeah, I, I would agree with you. But there, there's a lot more nuance to it than just saying um, raising the minimum wage has economic imp- implications and doesn't actually lift people out of poverty. Uh, you just you can, I don't think you can make that blanket statement, right? Like it, there's just there's just too much nuance, right? Which is what people should be doing is is investigating the nuance, but we're emotionally charged and don't get there. And hearing a liberal professor talk about, well, this is what it's going to take, and he's talking about the minimum wage, well, he, it tells me that he doesn't understand the minimum wage. He doesn't understand the nuances of economics, which he used in his example as something that liberals understand, that this is how you reduce inequality. A conservative would say, no, that's not true. And I'm saying that Jonathan Haidt, in his lofty position, should at least know the conservative viewpoint that would counter that point because it would be sobering and prompt some thought. Because I hear what you're saying. In, mm-hmm. in upstate New York, if you raise the minimum wage, you're, are you saying that it would put businesses out of business yeah, in New York it would, City? It would Go really ahead. hurt businesses in upstate New York. If you have a family-owned business with 100 employees and they have to now pay double what the minimum wage was, that's really going to hurt their business. But if you have um, companies like McDonald's in New York City who now have to double what they're paying their employees only in New York City, that's not going to put them out of business. But it is probably going to help the people who live there quite a bit. See, I don't think there should be a, a minimum wage at all. I think if somebody wants to go and work for a dollar seventy-eight an hour, that they should be allowed to do that. Yeah, and you just think the market should set the price? Absolutely. So, what's the other side of that argument? Why? I mean, why? Why is that not the case? Why do we have a minimum wage? Yeah, because you have proponents of equality who believe that it helps. The nuance is, well, who holds these jobs? Is a 43-year-old with a family of four holding a minimum wage job? No. Most of most minimum wage jobs are held by very young people who need a first step on the, the lowest rung of the ladder. And that's what America is. It's a ladder to climb. So you got to figure out a way to get on the ladder. If you can get on the ladder, ladder at $1.78 when you're 16 years old and show Joseph Wells, who's hiring, that you're punctual, that you work hard, you're punctual, you show up on time, um, 
I keep saying this. That's the same thing. But you get what I'm saying. You work hard. <laughs> you, you work hard. You show up on time and shine your shoes, as my friend Matt Ori would say. He's really impressed with that. Uh, you're going to get 250 because you have a competitive marketplace. And if you won't hire him at 250, then I'll hire him at 250. Yeah, I, I, th- I think that's that's generally fair. Um, you know, spending the last six or seven years living and working in New York City, of course, this is anecdotal, but a lot of the people that I'm buying my sandwiches from are not a 16-year-old kid who's just getting his his foot on the first rung of the, the working world. It's a lot of immigrants that are making pizzas or making sandwiches or delivering food or um, cleaning the buildings that I work in. You know, these, these people are... They're supporting families, so yeah. I, I look. I, I agree with what you're saying in in a lot of cases, but like we just said, there's a lot more nuance to it. Uh, where I grew up, I would say, yeah, that that's spot on the case. There are not a lot of forty year old people working minimum wage jobs because that's just not um, how it works. But I think the nature of the area uh, in which you find yourself really dictates the type of person that's going to be working a minimum wage job. And that doesn't necessarily say something about their character or their ability to work hard. It it might just be something as simple as they're new to the country and they don't really have much education or they don't speak English very well or, or something like that. Now I'm not saying like because they're working hard and they're trying to support their family, they should make 30 or $40 an hour. But um, if you're going to go and work 40 or 50 hours a week, you should be able to put some food on your table, right? And, and keep a roof over your head. That's that's really all that I'm saying. Well, you use the word living wage. That is a political term. What does that even mean? Yeah, that, yeah that's a good point. Um, I guess that would be different uh, depending on where you are, right? But, but uh, like at a general level, I would say it means you can pay your rent, you can food on the table, you can keep clothing on your children's back and not have to go into debt to do those things. One of the things that Peter Pagosian said on your podcast was what policies should govern people who have IQs below a certain level. And you cannot say that kind of thing in academia. It's no wonder the guy lost his job because that is incredibly politically incorrect. You remember how much trouble Charles Murray got in for publishing studies on IQ in the 90s? He had the gall to say that people from different cultures had different IQs. So I'm not familiar with that research or, or his book, but I've, I've heard something similar to this before. So there's another good example. Should I even comment on something like Charles Murray's study? If I couldn't detail what what it entails or how he went about collecting the research. So just as an example, earlier you asked me about the Electoral College and I gave you my opinion and you said, oh, there you go. You don't exactly know. And it's like, OK, so should I not should I not have an opinion? Are you asking in the context of, of the Charles Murray thing? I guess I'm I'm kind of like uh, getting at the guys that we're discussing, like these these Peter Bogosian, Jonathan Haidt types for having all these opinions, but it just, 
it falls under the line of thinking that is these guys are so siloed that it's amazing to hear them have ideas that just are not applicable and and yet there's they're supposed to be so smart the unread library effect and the figuring out how things work i just thought that those kind of things were that's ivy league stuff that i wouldn't waste my time with but it's a difference of opinion yeah that that's fair that's fair i i think the more reading i do and the more i talk to people who have different opinions than i do um the more that i'm i'm realizing or coming to the conclusion that i probably shouldn't have an opinion on something unless i can clearly articulate how that thing works like what the process is um and be able to reason through and and clearly explain why my opinion is what it is because otherwise it's it's you know, what's what's the point of sharing an opinion if it's not really based in fact, if it's just based on emotion, like you're talking about? I'd much rather say, I don't really know too much about that. Why don't you tell me what you think? Or because not, then I can learn. Or not having your opinion intertwined with your person, which is what we see a lot, where people feel offended because their opinion has been attacked, but it's just an yeah, opinion. It's right. the old uh, strong opinions loosely held. Right. Throw your opinion out in the middle of a circle and let people wrestle with that opinion it has nothing to do with you right if you don't like my opinion or if my opinion is wrong so what that's i don't i'm not losing any sleep it's just my opinion and i'm willing to have it i'll throw it out there if you can change it go ahead and change it and then i'll take it back so that's kind of how i feel about something like like compulsory service right like i have done a little bit a good amount of research on it um kind of think it's it's a good idea but I certainly don't root my identity in it. Um, so I'll write an essay. I'll throw it out there. I'll say, this is kind of what I think, but totally open to feedback here. And, and maybe it's not the right solution to the, the disunity problem or whatever. But I, I think that's that's a good approach. Like, don't don't tie an identity to an opinion. Yeah. So if I said to you, does compulsory national service violate the 13th Amendment? What would you say? I would say based on the reading that I've done, it does not violate the 13th Amendment because there have been two types of cases. So one is draft law cases um, that upheld the constitutionality of the draft. And the second was a, a case, Supreme Court case, where a student was required to complete 40 hours of community service to graduate from high school. And he said that he claimed that that requirement violated his 13th Amendment right. The su Supreme Court decided against him. So those are two pieces of evidence that I believe point to the fact that compulsory service does not violate the 13th Amendment. But if there's some other evidence out there that, that, that says otherwise, I'd certainly be willing to revise my opinion, specifically if it's case law that I haven't, haven't come across. Okay, so I understand the 13th Amendment to say neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States. Sure. The definition of servitude is a condition in which one lacks liberty, especially to determine one's course of action or way of life. 
if you had never heard that before, if you had never heard someone strongly, forcefully give you that opinion and tell you that your compulsory service was bullshit, would you be able to wrestle with that opinion and not get emotional? Let me just make sure I understand your question. If I had not heard what before? The argument that I just gave you, if so let's say you and I were in a courtroom or on the legislative floor and you tried to pass this legislation and I thought it was bullshit mm -hmm. and I told you the reason is because this and I laid out the definition and I, I told you what the 13th Amendment was, which I'm sure you'd be familiar with. Mm -hmm. But then I defined what servitude is and in my opinion, clearly stated why it is that we shouldn't implement compulsory national service. You have spent hours and hours researching this idea. It's your idea and you're throwing it out there. And what I'm asking you is, are you attached to your opinion because you've invested so much time in it or, or are you willing to have people beat it up? Oh, I'm totally willing to have people beat it up. I've done this all over Twitter. People have shit all over this idea because so many people hate it. And that's totally fine with me. Uh, the thing that I appreciate when people engage is that, number one, they've read the essay. Number two, they're, they're bringing some kind of coherent, logical, fact-based argument like you just presented. You know, you laid out the 13th Amendment. You gave me the, the definition of, of servitude, right? And you said, I, I disagree that this doesn't, I think this violates the 13th Amendment. I disagree with you. I'm totally cool with that. I'm not necessarily going to change my opinion based on that line of argumentation that you just presented, but I think it's a total valid line of argumentation, and I would welcome other people to to discuss that. It would be nice to have more than just like two people going back and forth saying, uh, this is what I think, and the other person saying, no, you're wrong. It'd be nice to hear some other people weigh in. So if we're in that hypothetical um, if we're on the House floor debating this bill, right? And I introduced the bill, and that was your rebuttal. Sure, let's hear everybody talk about it. Let's hear what everybody else has to say, because that's what I think. But that doesn't mean that that's necessarily right. But the fact that I have backed my argument up with facts and with research, and I've thought about it, and you've backed your rebuttal up with facts and research, and you've thought about it, those are the prerequisites for the conversation. I don't want somebody to come in and say, violates the 13th Amendment. You're a fucking idiot. And that, that's it, right? Because like, we can't have a conversation there. You're not, you're not giving me any information to consider, and you haven't considered any information. I'm not saying you, Brad, but you know somebody who does that. Have you heard General McChrystal's argument on this? I have, but you're going to have to refresh me as to the specifics. He said, instead of making national service legally mandatory, corporations and universities, among other institutions, could be enlisted to make national service socially obligatory. Right. What the hell is the difference between legally mandatory and socially obligatory? So legally mandatory is um, there's a law saying that you have to you have to do one year of, of service, right? Mm -hmm. Socially obligatory is when a company is a big company, right? Like a huge employer, somebody like a JP Morgan Chase or a Home Depot or a Walmart or somebody saying, we are going to preferentially hire people who have um, completed one year of national service. 
it's not compulsory, but we think it's a good idea for the country and we want to support and hire people who uh, hold that same opinion and, and, and value the country in the way that we do. So that, that would be socially, uh, what, what was the term you used? Socially? Socially obligatory. Socially obligatory. Yeah. Or, or for, for colleges to say, um, we're only going to give merit scholarships to students who um, have, have completed a year of national service. So you're, you're preferencing people who are, who are doing this thing that you want them to do. This is one case where I can think of so many exceptions. In this case, you've got people who take care of grandparents or who have people they support in Africa. Or, I mean, I can, th- I can just think of thousands and thousands of people who might be accepted from this law. Have you thought through how you would factor all of that in and whether or not people would be penalized if they had something that they were doing to support someone individually as opposed to more of a collective cross-country thing? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a big consideration. Um, the, the example you use about like supporting somebody in Africa, I think the, the Peace Corps would certainly qualify for, for service because it's, it's not just service to the United States. It's, it's service to something bigger than yourself and, and it's exposure to people who are different than you and, and kind of creating this shared suffering. So like the Peace Corps wouldn't be at the top of my list. I, I would prefer that it was something uh, in service to America, but, but a service year in general is, is I think what we would be going for here. But you, you raise a good point about people who have other obligations that would kind of prevent them from being able to do a service year. No, I, I really haven't, not that I didn't consider it. I just didn't think all the way through what those exceptions might be. But that's a good point. There, there would certainly be exceptions. Just because you haven't thought through all of that, I wouldn't expect you to not have a strong opinion. A, a strong opinion as to whether or not compulsory national service is a good idea. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I see where you're going. Um, Just bringing it full circle. That seems to be an issue that is not necessarily central to the point. Well, it's a second and third order effect. Sure. Yeah, it is. Someone might get penalized who's having to take care of a grandmother. And that would be just as valuable to society as someone who volunteers for the Peace Corps, which, as I understand it, we have six or seven X the amount of applicants as we do places for them in the Peace Corps. Does that sound about right? Not positive on the Peace Corps. I know for America that America is okay. the case. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I may have mixed them up. And, and the Peace Corps, de- it does have more applicants than there are um, slots, but I think AmeriCorps has the bigger gap. Can you talk about the joint suffering that you mentioned just a minute ago? Yeah, so joint suffering is, well, Sebastian Younger talks about this in his book, Tribe. And when you suffer with other people, you create a bond with them. So th- this could be something as simple as like when I was in high school, I played football and football practices suck. 
right? But you're going through those practices every single day with the same group of people and you're all going through that same suck, right? You're out there in 30 degree weather getting tackled into puddles and it's miserable, but you're doing it for the good of the team. You're doing it to get better so that you can go out on Saturday and win alongside of the the people that you are experiencing this just shitty joint suffering with all week. And you form really strong bonds with these people because you go through suffering together. And the same is true like in the military. I spoke with a guy named uh, Brendan O'Byrne on my podcast, and he, he talks about um, when he was deployed in the Korangal Valley of Afghanistan, how he just had the, such close bonds with the people that he was with and, and the, the, the hierarchy of, of decisions was how do I keep my, my, my brothers safe? And then how do I keep myself safe? It was always in that order because they were going through this terrible, terrible thing together, um, this joint suffering and it created immense unity to the point where you care about the people to your right and your left more than you care about yourself. Um, you can look at things like uh, the Blitz in London, which was the, the firebombing during World War II. The, the citizens were kind of camping out together underground in, I think it might have been subway stations. It was it was somewhere underground. And they were just in absolute shit uh, conditions. Like, there's piss on the floor and there's no light. and It's smelly and it's dark and it's cold. But these people like policed themselves and there was no crime underground because everybody was going through this, this suffering together and people actually reported after it was over, they, they missed it. Like you, how can you, can you imagine missing living underground, not knowing if you were going to be bombed every single night and missing that. I think uh, we're so, going to miss this social distancing too. So why, why do you think that? Because of the hardship. Do you think that we're embracing it like like people embraced the common enemy we had during World War II? No. Of course not. <laughs> not on that scale, definitely not. But I'm just talking about the togetherness. I was able to spend a lot of time with my wife and my mom during this yeah. pandemic and I think that I'm going to look back on it 25 years from now and think that it was a special time that I didn't fully appreciate because it was it was a, a struggle, a little bit of a struggle. I think you're right. I've, I've spent a lot of this time with my girlfriend and, and her family. And, you know, we make, make the big grocery list and go out shopping every two weeks. And we try to stay in the house besides that. And that's like, you know, that you think of that, that's like first world problems, right? But when you're used to going to the grocery store every couple of days and not having to make a list and not having to buy $700 worth of shit, like it's it's a pretty big inconvenience, and it's this kind of suffering that we all have. And I I know I'm going to miss it because like I'm enjoying the hell out of it. And it's a shared suffering, which is exactly what you're talking about with right. the London Brit Blitzkrieg. Right. They were right. forced underground, and they got to know each other, and we were just the knowledge of knowing that we're all going through it at the same time. I definitely think we'll look back and think this was a pretty cool thing. You're never going to be forced into a situation like this again, more than likely. Yeah, and it, it's universal. When you look at any tragedy or disaster, you know, you look at Hurricane Katrina or 9/11 or um, the the coal miners who got trapped underground. Like people 
come together and help each other and are kind, unlike any other situation. And it's uh, largely attributable to the the, the hardship and the, the, sh- the suffering they go through together, I think. Indeed. Do you remember Jonathan Haidt talking about in The Coddling of the American Mind how the Gen Z generation arrived on campus in 2014, 2015, and they were the most depressed generation ever recorded. They didn't have, uh, he had reasons for this, which were they didn't have much unsupervised playtime. Yeah. Which we know play is the mammalian, the mammalian way of learning social behavior. And I don't know if he said this or not, but I also think that those who are depressed probably haven't had as much hardship, right? We can see in the prosperity of our times now that we're more depressed than ever. We don't have millennia of data on depression, but I know it's certainly increased over the last several years as we become more prosperous. Yeah, I think that there's definitely been a, a spike in especially adolescent depression and not only depression, but ADHD. And I, I think both of those things are, are, are very strongly connected with uh, the use of devices and, and screen time and a constant stimulation. So like you just said, uh, people who don't experience hardship are more prone to depression. I agree with that, and I, I think, take it another step, I think people that don't get to experience boredom as children are more prone to anxiety and to ADHD. Because when you experience boredom, you ha- are, are con- confronted with your thoughts, and you have to be able to process those thoughts, and then you have to be able to use creativity to figure out how you're going to fill your time. So you're either going to fill your time with something that, that is mentally engaging because you've had to, had to be creative to come up with that solution, or you're just going to sit there and you're going to listen to the thoughts in your head and you're going to process them. If you never have to be bored and you never have that experience because you have a, an iPhone in your hand and you can play a game when you feel bored, you can play a game when, when thoughts start popping into your head and you don't have to deal with those thoughts because you've got this game in front of you, you've got Twitter to scroll or whatever. It doesn't make the problem go away. It doesn't, it doesn't help you to become comfortable with thoughts in your head. It just distracts you from them. You're just kicking the can down the road. Um, so I, I think uh, very similar to people who don't uh, experience hardship, feeling, feeling depression, I, I think people who don't experience boredom end up having the same the same thing. I think you just made an important point, which is people not being comfortable with their thoughts. So I, I believe the reason that Haidt got involved with all this back in early 2010s is because he began to notice how disempowered students were on campus and the fact that they wanted trigger warnings, which would lead to discomfort in their mind, which is incredible to you and me, right? I mean, it's wild. But it's it's really wild. But this all coincided with the rise of social media and lack of boredom. You're absolutely right. And and the the other point that he makes in here, and you, you talked about unsupervised play. Um, I think it was parents. So adults who grew up in like the 70s and 80s 
were inundated with like the kid on the on the milk carton, right? Like missing children and all that kind of stuff. But since then, uh, society has become considerably safer, and child abduction is not really uh, much of a concern at all. But those parents grew up in that time period where it was a concern and it was front of mind. So they became helicopter parents. So they don't let their kids walk down the street to go to the store or walk a couple blocks over to play with their friends without supervision. So these kids always have parents hovering over them and they're not, they, they're not given the opportunity to resolve conflicts on their own. And if you never have to resolve a conflict on your own, then you're always going to look to some authority figure to resolve it for you. And that's exactly what's happening on, on campuses and in the workplace too. Like I've seen this in the workplace, people uh, crying racism or crying that they didn't get a, a promotion or, or a, a big enough salary increase when they feel like they should. And they're one year out of college, you know, um, it's a big change. And it's interesting how he ties it back to these things that are simple as like the kid on the milk carton. Yeah, I was reminded of the kid on the milk carton when I was at Best Buy. This was probably two months ago. You may remember I posted a picture in my Instagram stories of me and a kid playing uh, Nintendo or something at Best Buy. And Joe Walsh, who is the founder of America's Most Wanted, he was at a store like a Best Buy in the early 80s. And either he or his wife let their kid, their young boy, go and play like a video game inside the store and he got mixed in with the older, some older kids that were playing the video game. And then they kicked the older kids out for causing a ruckus. And then the, the kid got kicked, the, the small boy got kicked out with these older kids and then they dispersed and leaving the young boy by himself outside. And he was kidnapped and decapitated. Right. And that's how Joe Walsh got involved with America's most wanted. It's an incredible story he was the one, he was the big proponent of getting kids' faces on milk cartons. Right. And you're right, it's the odds of being abducted in America is something on the order of 100 out of 330 million. I mean, it's almost infinitesimal. And this doesn't include the non-custodial parent, but I grew up in the 80s and I can always, my, my mom was so concerned about vans without windows <laughs> riding by the driveway while I was shooting basketball as if I was going to fall for the candy in the back of the van trick. Uh, but it was a constant, constant worry. Was it like that when you were kids, when you were a kid? I mean, there was like a slight, slightly, but not really. I grew up in a really small town. Uh, it was super safe, but you know, I always remember like my mom wanting me to call when I got somewhere, you know, but I, I, but I was allowed to hop on my bike and ride to the other side of town to meet my friends. You know, the other side of town was a half a mile away. So it wasn't that far. It wasn't that dangerous, but, um, not me. I couldn't leave the street. I couldn't leave where my mom could see me for like the first 11 years of my life. But I started to do it anyway. And that's probably why we started fighting a whole lot. <laughs> I, I think that when I was like four years old, my grandma used to take me to nursery school. And I used to tell her a different way to get there every day. And I think that that is so part of me, that adventurous side, which is why we're doing what we're doing now and exploring the world. Because yeah. I had to expand beyond that small town because I'm an adult now 
and everything's bigger. So I just, I enjoyed that so much because my grandma would come in from New Orleans, which was like an hour away from where I grew up. And she didn't know how to get to school. She was relying on me, the four-year-old. And I was like, oh, we're going on an adventure, but I'll get us there. And sure enough, we'd show up right on time. And I had forgotten about that. She reminded me of it before we di- before she died. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that's cool. You grew up in a small town too, huh? Yeah. But you had more lenient lenient parents. Well, I guess no. Actually, my parents were probably pretty strict compared to like most of my friends. But what you were saying, like until I was eleven, I wasn't allowed to really go anywhere. Until I was eleven or twelve, we didn't live in town anyway, so there was no way for me to just hop on my bike and ride to a friend's house. But by the time I was eleven, twelve, thirteen. I could do that, no problem. But I guess, you know, that's probably the age where kids are allowed to do that anyway. Yeah. I remember Height was on the Joe Rogan podcast, and he was talking about how he now needs to teach to the most sensitive person in the class. Because what's happening in these elite institutions is they can now report microaggressions anonymously. So... And they would get no credit for approaching the professor in his office hours and saying, hey, you know, I can't believe you said, oh, kill me now. You use this this metaphor that I took seriously, and I have a friend who has suicidal tendencies, so I'm offended. <laughs> so he's just talking through all these things. I don't know how they can exist in these worlds, but that's what we've created for ourselves, and it probably stems from the helicopter parenting that's going on in America where we've we've overprotected kids and they've become so sensitive and so unwilling to entertain thoughts that are discomforting that it's carrying over not into the world of professors who are now losing their jobs who are trying to call attention to this but it happened at Google where right. a guy is trying to make things better because you ask for feedback and it's like oh you didn't want honest feedback. My my bad. I I wasn't sure how the game worked. It's it's crazy. I I think I think we talked about this in probably our the first episode we did together where we talked about the value of getting picked on. Yes. Right? And how it's good to get picked on because then you can deal with a little bit of adversity. Right now, I'm not saying like I would wish for everyone to be bullied relentlessly, but among your group of friends to have somebody call you a pussy now and then <laughs> might be kind of good for you. You know, like you should go through those days where your friends are beating up on you a little bit because tomorrow you're going to be beaten up on, on somebody else in the group and it's all good natured, but it, it, it teaches you to let stuff just kind of roll off your back. Well, I think a lot of that has to do with the feminization of America and the fact that most of young kids are taught by women and and women, more so than men, want to protect people's feelings. And so they would never allow the bullying to happen in the first place with not understanding that that, that bullying can help to forge your character. But women have been teaching children for, you know, since the beginning of schools, right? That, that has, if anything, there are more men teaching now. At my school, it was almost 100% women up until grade eight. In fact, it was 100% women. But that's my point is, a or whatever, how, however many years ago when bullying wasn't really an issue and nobody thought it was a big deal, it was mm-hmm. still women who were the teachers then. So I'm not sure that the difference is women. No, I'm just saying that that's a component of it. You understand that 
that women, not you, understand, but I'm just right, saying, yeah. Yeah. Uh, women don't want kids to feel any discomfort. So mm-hmm. they're coddling and protecting them. And what I'm saying is that this is a new phenomenon. I mean, that's what we're talking about, right? I mean, Jonathan Haidt, the coddling of the American mind, all of this is a new discovery, basically. Yeah. And so although women have always been in elementary schools, primarily, 90% of teachers, if I had to guess, it's only becoming a thing now as we, I, I think, as we brought on what I call the feminization of America, where, where we adopt these values as being virtuous. Mm, yeah. I mean, the call-out culture, that, that is a feminine activity, right? We, we know that, that women communicate in a different way than we do. It's why they have more problems with social media, because we're equally aggressive, men and women, but women are relationally aggressive, whereas right. you and I are going to punch each other in the mouth, right? If, right. if you talk shit to me, <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's a covert communication when you are trying to isolate girls from the group and depression rates among girls now as a, as a consequence of social media, it is believed uh, they're, they're either anxiety ridden or depressed in their teenage years at a rate of about 15%. And prior to social media, it was 6%. So that's a 150% increase. Right. Yeah. And, and like you said, that, that point that height makes about social media being harder on, on girls than it is on, on boys, um, because girls are, are trying to undermine the status of each other through relationships, right? And, and boys are trying to do it through physical aggression. So that doesn't really play out as much on social media. But it's really easy to undermine somebody's relation relational status in the group on social media that's a very easy thing to do so that yeah that's why it affects females more than males do you want to do some fun questions yeah sure let's do it have you been watching the last dance no i haven't been watching that the last thing i watched was ozark i loved ozark so good right like that is probably the best tv i've ever watched yes it is so well written i would put it up there with sopranos in terms of the writing Oh, okay. So I haven't watched Sopranos. People have been recommending that to me even more so recently. But um, Breaking Bad is another one that I really liked and thought the writing was very good. And I would put Ozark right there with Breaking Bad. Ditto. I said on the last podcast that Ozark was 30 hours of my life, but I enjoyed every minute of it. I couldn't wait to watch the next one. I felt the same way. I, I Now I'm dying for the next season to come out. I know. And then we watched Waco. The next The next thing we watched was Waco. Oh, and I heard that, that was great. The girl is on there too. Ruth? Yes. Oh, really? Fucking Ruth. Yeah. <laughs> She's fucking on there. She's nuts. <laughs> All right, I'm going to have to watch that one because you're the second person to recommend that to me. Well, I was going to ask you if you would have coffee with Michael Jordan or Warren Buffett, but Ooh. Michael Jordan probably isn't fresh on your mind like he well, is me. No, no, certainly not, but... I'd still go with Warren Buffett. All right. Let's say you were gifted free use of a private jet for two vacations and you could take those vacations at any time you wanted to take them, but you couldn't leave them to your heirs. Mm-hmm. So you could do this at any age. When would you take those trips? Do I get to bring people with me? Yep. Okay. So I would do one probably when my kids are like... 
early teens. So like still in high school, I would do one with my wife and kids then. And then I would do another one when I'm in like my late seventies, early eighties with my kids and my grandkids. Wow. So you would take a risk. You lose it if you don't use it. Yeah. You would take the risk that you're going to live into your early 80s. Yeah, I think I'd take that risk. I like that. If you could double your income by the year 2023, how would you do it? If um, you had to double it. If I had to double it by 2023, so that's three years from now, I would probably learn to code through like Treehouse or something like that. And then I would combine that skill with my experience in consulting to get into some kind of tech consulting management position. And I think I could double my income in three years by doing that probably. That's not what I would want to do. But if I had to double my income, that's probably how I would try to do it. Who do you think Joe Biden will choose as his VP? Oh, geez. I don't watch any news. I don't follow politics very much. But... I don't know. I think Mayor Pete would be a good choice. What do you think? Well, he's already said he's going to choose a woman. And the fact that you didn't say a woman <laughs> tells me that you absolutely do not watch the news. I really and don't. I'm, yeah. I'm impressed by that. You, the last <laughs> person I asked that question to, he said the same thing. What is a podcast that you've discovered in the last six months that you're enjoying? Oh, let me pull up on my phone real quick. I haven't been listening to a ton of podcasts. It's kind of weird thought I would have more time to listen to podcasts during quarantine, but I'm, I'm not. I'm doing a lot more reading. I've seen some stats where they're down. Downloads are down about 10 to 20% since, since the pandemic started. Yeah, I'd have to imagine that's because people aren't commuting, right? Like That's got to be when most people listen to their podcasts. Yeah, or going to the gym. Yeah, that too. How many books are you reading right now? Uh, right now, I'm reading two. I'm reading John Heights, uh, the, the Righteous Mind. Mind. Yep, that one's really good. Oh, actually, I'm not reading two. I finished one last night or the night before. I I started the Chronicles of Narnia series because I wanted to read some fiction. The Chronic, what cools of Narnia? <laughs> you remember that? <laughs> SNL <laughs> did a skit to make fun of the Chronicles of Narnia. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> to answer your podcast question, I, I just scrolled through. I haven't really picked up any new ones recently, but Tim Ferriss's newest episode with Michael Lewis was excellent. I loved it, it too. So good, man. I've I listened agree. to it twice already. Good for you. Yeah, my favorite episodes of Tim Ferriss are the Peter Malouk ep episode, which you and I yep. have talked about. And I really enjoyed Michael Lewis. I also enjoyed Jamie Foxx. Before I take us out, I just want to tell you how much I appreciate our friendship. Thank you for joining us, man. Hey, thank you, Brad. This is a good time. All right, buddy. Friends, thank you for joining us. I can't tell you how much it means to me. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the link with a friend. Until next time. Thank you, friends. Thank you.